I know you. You are afraid to speak up. You are scared of what other people think of you. And you blame yourself for what happened to you. I know how it feels because I've been there. If you found me, I'm so grateful you are here. This podcast will give you hope. And I'm your host, Anna Maidanova. And I'm going to hold your hand and provide the guidance. It's time for you to find your why and turn your experience into your biggest power. This is your time now. So lock your door, put your headphones in and enjoy. Elizabeth Marcin Chan, welcome to World's Best Trauma Recovery Podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. Uh, you are such an amazing and wonderful and inspiring woman. And this is such a pleasure to have you on my podcast. Elizabeth, I would love to start with some challenging question for you. <laughs> okay. How do I understand or realize that I'm a people pleaser? So I think that the biggest clue as to whether you're a people pleaser is how you feel about the things that you're doing in the world. Does it resonate with who you think you are? Or is it all about the external? Because Sometimes we get so wrapped up in what we th in nurturing other people, in nurturing the needs and wants and what we believe are the desires of other people that we forget ourselves. And when you get really far down what I call the people-pleasing rabbit hole, you don't even know what it is that you want. It resonates with me so much because I was in a in the same position just recently a few years ago for me the most scariest thing was um, I was worrying what people were uh, thinking about me I uh, I was caring what um, that people will judge me for my mistakes I was terrified to make a mistake <laughs> mm -hmm. and I seriously thought that I will never enjoy my life I will never do things what I love because I have to be there for, pe for people I have to do what others want from me I have to literally guess what people want to hear or um, what they want what they need from me And it was constant pressure. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't really have a time for myself. And um, when did you realize that people pleasing became a huge problem for you? So I actually was living my life thinking I had a pretty good life. I have a number of children. I had the privilege to be in a relationship that allowed me to stay at home 
um, and be with my children um, and really, you know, nurture that next generation. And as my third child was heading off to university, I began to have this, um, I can only describe it as like this vibration in my body. And it felt like I was bouncing off of the walls, um, almost like a ping pong ball, you know, going from one side to the other and having no idea where I was going to land next. Like it just was this internal vibration, um, very disconcerting. And a good friend of mine asked me, do you love yourself? Mm -hmm. And I have to tell you, that was a mind-blowing and world-alternating, alterating question. Because I had no idea that I was allowed to love myself. And that single question shifted everything for me. And that was about eight, nine years ago. And ever since then, I've been on this journey of how do you actually love yourself? And I don't believe until we've, until I've figured out how to love myself, I can't be, I can't be an honest, truthful relationship with others. And so other relationships shift as I learn what it means to love myself. And, and it really goes back even to the, the Christian creed of love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I heard growing up all about loving my neighbor. I don't think I ever heard what it means to love yourself. So I've really flipped that on its head. And I'm in the pursuit of what does it mean to love myself? And then I can love others. Mm, lots of people think... Self-love is a selfish, which I think is a huge mistake because you are right. You can't love your neighbor until you are full of love to yourself. If you don't have love in yourself, you have nothing to share. But when you nurture yourself, when you look after yourself, you start radiating this love and everything else starts changing around you. And how, how does your relationship with your husband and your kids change when you finally start, started to love yourself? It becomes more open and honest. Um, I think that, I do actually think that I was very open as a mother to my children. Um, I didn't, it was one thing that somehow instinctively I knew even before I realized I needed to love myself that the freedom, maybe I recognized unconsciously that I didn't have a freedom of to, to be who I was. I gave my children that freedom. Um, that was part of, you know, I have this, this desire for the dignity of others honoring the dignity of others, um, which we also need to learn how to honor the dignity of ourselves. So that's become stronger, I think. Um, and yeah, there are a lot of holes still in my relationship 
with my husband because I need to learn as I learn how to love myself, that concept of intimacy just gets it gets more refined and I have a deeper understanding of it. So that shift is a constant um it's a constant evolution. It's a journey. Yeah. It is a journey. Yeah. I agree with you and you need some time. Um, and I love how you shifted your perspective about um, um, about dignity for your kids. Because what I've noticed and what I've learned that no, not many parents understand that people-pleasing behavior comes from childhood. Mm-hmm. When we are, as a human beings, we love to be in a community. And when your kids do something wrong, we, what do we do? We exclude them from ourselves, from the family, from, uh, um, from the community, in the school, in the kindergarten. Uh, I'm saying not, uh, exclude, it means put them in the corner or stop talking to them um, or being upset with them. And the child develops this need to please you just mm-hmm. so he can be with you. Um, in my question to you, Elizabeth, were you as a child always listening and worrying what people think of you? When did it start for you? It probably started the day I was born. Um, I am a highly sensitive, so those antennas were already out, I think, the day I was born. Um, And I was born into a family that had, that was not harmonious. Um, And my parents split when I was six. And all of the, I think we're recognizing more and more all of that there is trauma in divorce for children. Um, My parents were split in the early 70s, um, which was really before the divorce wave um, that came in the late 70s and early 80s. So there weren't other children that I knew that were going through this. There wasn't a recognition. I think there was a recognition that people just survive. I mean, you know, my kids, my parents came out of, um, they were born in the early 40s. So it was just I come from the States, so actually both of them were born before the Americans entered the war. So they're actually pre-war babies with parents who had been, you know, adults coming into adulthood or in adulthood during the 30s. So this concept of survival was far more part of their um, tapestry. So the concept of, like, let's help our children with some therapy wasn't even there and I think collectively we haven't really I think we've come to a place where we understand that children need that kind of support but I didn't come from that time um and I think both my parents did the best they could but they had limitations and I had to figure out how to survive I do agree with you about, I think it's written in our DNA that we need to be in community. 
And when we banish, when we feel banished, we try to figure out what is it that I need to do so that I'm accepted by the community. And that's, yeah, I mean, that's the root of people pleasing is it's not, we, we lose the ability to, to step in and be centered in who we are, trusting that the community needs who we are. And instead we think we have to put on these masks and be what we think they need us to be. So yeah, my antenna have been out <laughs> most of my life. Like what, what is it that people need me to be? You know, what do I have to do? And it's, I think it's not just parents, it's a whole culture. It's a culture that says, you know, creatives aren't really what we value. We value people who have good marks in school and who can, do certain types of skills. And, and so we get streamlined. So those of us who are more sensitive and creative and don't necessarily instinctively tap into the sort of the way this capitalist um, society that's rooted in, in a patriarchy mindset we don't know where we fit in because we haven't been taught that we're accepted that way. So instead we, we put on that mask and, you know, my masks can look different depending on who I'm with. My mask with my mother was very different than my mask with my father. We lived on different economic strata, mm -hmm. you know, um, that was just our reality. So when I went to see my dad, it was a different economic strata. It was a different mask. This is so interesting. So my parents uh, also uh, divorced when I was four years old. My father left and never returned. And I saw him maybe four times <laughs> after that. Mm -hmm. And this feeling of abandonment yes. was, I didn't know I had this fear of abandonment until I grown up and figured this out for myself. Um, why do I feel like, uh, why do I feel so attached to, to people? Why do I have to please someone so they can stay? That was, that was a harsh realization, to be honest. And how was your relationship with your father developing after divorce? So my father left the marriage, but there was a divorce agreement that we had to spend time with him. So there was designated time. Um, one of the benefits to my mother of divorcing in the early 70s was that she had the freedom to move. So she was able to, without my father, you know, being asked if that was okay. So we, she moved to pursue her studies um, so I didn't see him every other weekend, which was the part of the agreement, but I did see him every other holiday and six weeks in the summer. So we had this back and forth and, you know, my father really behaved as though those were our designated times. He didn't you know, like nothing, nothing special that happened in my life, in my 
you know, when, like when I graduated from grade eight, my father wasn't there when, you know, he didn't come for those special other things, but we went and visited him. And I will say he didn't know how to sort of treat the time as special, or at least I didn't feel like he knew how to do that. He, it was like, he wanted it to appear that everything was just normal. Like we were always there. So suddenly we were there and he still went off to work, which was, I mean, yes, he, there's an economic reality in that, but he didn't make space in his life to say, Oh, it's so nice to have you here. You know, this is a special time. It was as though he was trying to create normalcy, but it wasn't normal. Like, I mean, I guess it was our normal, but suddenly being there and sitting down to dinner with my father, that wasn't my normal through the rest of my life. So, you know, it's a, it's a very surface relationship. We've continued to have a relationship, but it is, it's very surfacey. There's no deep dive into emotions or curiosity about who I am. And how are you processing, how did you process emotionally this neglecting, I want to say neglecting from your father? Yeah, I mean, I think I also was in an abandonment, but I didn't recognize it as that. It's only in hindsight that I realized that the little kid in me thought I was abandoned. Um, Emotionally, I shut down, right? I shut there. We hide the things that are our most precious parts of who we are. Um, that's one of the reasons as hard it is hard as it is, I love shadow work because it's unfolding parts of ourselves that we've kept hidden. And I, I, I think of it as a treasure chest, like the most precious parts of me are down in the shadows. And one of those was my capacity to be vulnerable and my capacity to to feel on an emotional and a physical level i'm i'm a person who very is very body based um i'm i think of myself as a sensual being i need in my when i am authentically me i need that i need those sense i need the bare feet i need the you know the pleasure of eating i need i need the sounds of the forest um and to survive i shut a lot of that down because it was just too painful so i put it in my treasure chest i resonate with you so much um i've recently reconnected with my biological father after I opened up about my past, about my story. And so I, my mom told him, and when I went to Russia to testify against my stepfather, I decided to meet with my father. But bear in mind, even after he found out, he didn't call me, he didn't check up on me, which was really interesting. I said, okay, 
well, <laughs> I used to live without you. Not a big deal. And, um, but I decided to make this a first step. And uh, before I went to Russia, I called him. And I said, look, I'm calling you not like a daughter. I'm calling you as a friend. And I just wanted to let you know, I forgave you. I honestly forgave you for leaving me and for not being there when I needed you most. It was a one minute silent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just, I think this is the first uh, time someone actually told him something really nice. And he said, he said, I am so sorry. And I love you so much, daughter. For the very first time, Elizabeth, he called me his daughter. <laughs> and when I saw him in Russia, um, it was a bit weird because there wasn't much connection uh, as a daughter and father at all. So he jumped into, into the mode of judgment. Like, why didn't you tell me? Like, you haven't been there. I don't know you. We have no connection. You are a stranger for me. So, and it's actually set my path on, um, you know what? I'm going to be my own parent. And uh, I did a really wonderful, I had a really wonderful experience when during the meditation, I went back to my 10 years old Anna when, when I first time got so scared of my stepfather. And I, I sat down and I, I know she, she could see me. And I sat down with her and I said, Anna, I love you so much. I will always be by your side. You will be happy. You will be successful. You will be a confident woman. But just just be yourself. Just be yourself. Oh, my goodness. What an experience. (laughs) And um, I just, what I'm trying to say here. I guess not many people want to face their past. Mm -hmm. I guess not many people have this courage and strength to go there and, and look at your deepest, darkest. And I know how painful it is. I've been running from it for 20 years and I know it didn't work for me at all. Um, Elizabeth, I, mm-hmm. I, I, if I may, I think there comes a point in many people's lives where they just know they can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, they may not know. I mean, I didn't even know what it was that I couldn't do anymore. Mm-hmm. But that went through my head. I just can't do it anymore. And that in combination with this this question about loving myself, 
I realized that you had to shift that perspective. And I agree, a lot of people don't want to, they don't want to look backwards, but they also don't know how to shift their perspective so that they can live in today and move forward. And until they, you know, until they hit that point, whatever it is for them, they're going to keep on running away, hiding their best parts of themselves. And, and I don't, I'm not judging that because it's about survival. Um, and survival is written into our DNA. It's just for some of us, we reach that point where this isn't working. And I really love how open and authentic you are in your uh, No People Pleasing Zone podcast. I couldn't stop listening, honestly. And if uh, you, my listener, hasn't checked this out yet, I would highly, highly recommend to check this podcast out. There is so much valuable information. Just value, value, value. I've recognized myself a lot in your podcasts. Uh, and I'm so grateful you started it because uh, there are still so many women who are struggling uh, with uh, uh, with this feeling, some, I, I need to do something, but I don't know. And I know you talking about this in your podcast. Could you share some tips how to stop pleasing? Well, let me talk about shifting perspectives, um, which may or may not come out as a tip. Um, I talk about being stuck in something that I call the people-pleasing rabbit hole. I want to take the responsibility away from the individual. I think as somebody is beginning to realize that they're a people-pleaser, there's a lot of shame and self-judgment. But each of us were born into this world perfect with this beautiful, perfect essence. And we came into being a human. And living the human experience means that our essence isn't honored. That's just, that is the reality of being human. And the people-pleasing rabbit hole is a place. It's a culture that a lot of people, I think, can resonate with elements of it, no matter where you are in the world. Too many cultures are, are based in hierarchies of power. And that power dynamic makes, fe makes people feel less than and feeds the behavior of people-pleasing. So what I'm trying to do in the No People-Pleasing Zone, um, and thank you for calling out my podcast, is get raw and vulnerable and talk about the realities of being down this hole, of being in this culture that doesn't honor who you are and encourage people 
to start standing in the center of who they are and know that that essence is what the world needs. And it's a process. I'm not saying it's like a light switch by any stretch of the imagination. But the goal of the podcast is to just get real about the shit we live in and and be bold enough to grab hold of who you are because you're worthy. This is so wonderful, Elizabeth. And I love how you share one example in your podcast about um, if you're a people pleaser and you organize a dinner, you're hosting an event at your house. And what I would usually do, I would start cleaning my house uh, a day before, I would start cooking, doing shopping. Um, I would be stressing about what people will um, eat. Would they like this and that? I would try to uh, please everyone <laughs> and no. then by the time by the time the event comes i'm exhausted i and plus during the event i couldn't sit on one spot honestly i was running around pouring to everyone's uh, glass water champagne wine cleaning the serviettes uh washing dishes you know i was like a servant i wasn't enjoying the moment I, I, I love having people in my house, but by the end, I was just exhausted. <laughs> what would you, um, and, and your example was really wonderful. Would you like to tell us more about what is the first step <laughs> to do for, for people who are hosting event, but don't want to please people anymore? Um, I'm I put you on the spot. To, yeah, I'm trying to remember <laughs> what story you're talking about. Um, but I'm going to tell a story about um, claiming Christmas dinner one year. Mm. So we are often, because we have the large family, um, multiple children and partners, um, and a large home, we often are the, the place where gatherings happen. And as I was coming into this recognition, I was probably about, it was probably the second Christmas after I sort of started to become aware of, I've been running around doing all this stuff for other people. And yes, your description of hosting is so, so spot on for me. Um, And I'm particularly concerned about my mother-in-law and, you know, whether I was perfect enough for her son. Um, one year I decided I'm not doing Christmas the way everyone expects me to do Christmas. I decided I have Spanish heritage. It's, it's way back and I don't really know anything about my Spanish heritage, but I was getting curious about who I am. So I learned about, I researched what does, what do the Spaniards do for Christmas? And I really based my whole menu, and and my husband got in on this as well. We based our menu on what a traditional Christmas Eve dinner would look like. And I decided I wasn't going to give a shit if it was good enough for anyone else. 
And I did what I wanted to do. And actually, people enjoyed it. It was different, but they enjoyed it. What did you say to people? How did you organize it in the way that everyone could enjoy? I just said, you know what? We're having a traditional Spanish Christmas Eve dinner and left it at that. I just made the decision that this is what I want to do. This is my home. This is what I want to do. I'm exploring something. And if they don't enjoy it, that's on them. You know, learning to not be responsible for the feelings of another person is so key. Like what? That's their responsibility. This is my responsibility. I'm responsible for my feelings. Nobody else's. And that's a, that's a really, really hard lesson for a people pleaser, for somebody who's stuck in the people pleasing rabbit hole to recognize. But piece by piece by piece, it's a reclaiming. It's a remembering. It's a putting back together, right? It's remembering is the opposite of dismembering. When we remember, we're putting things back together. So we're putting parts of ourselves back together. And it might just be a little thing like, this is where I like to put the soap in the shower. And you know what? This is where it's going to go. That's a claiming. That's a claiming of me. That's a standing in who I am. It's a little thing. And sometimes that's all we have the capacity to do. But as you do those little things, it becomes bigger and bigger. And then you can throw that dinner that you don't give a shit if somebody likes it. This is what you want to do. You're hosting the dinner. I've invited people in. And I'm giving them an experience. And it's an experience based on what I want to give them. At the end of the day, it's more about uh, communication and spending quality time together and enjoying each other. Yeah. It's not only about food. I, yes, yes. I love it's it. about being in community. Mm-hmm. For me, now when I think of it, people pleasing came from um, more as a protection mechanism mm-hmm. because I knew if I wouldn't please my stepfather, I would probably risk my life and the life of my mother and my brother. And it was a really, really strong feeling for me. Took me years to realize, hey, I'm in a safe place right now. Elizabeth, do you have any advice for people who went through trauma and people pleasing is literally protection mechanism to survive? Yeah. Do you have any advice for those people? So it is, it is a protection mechanism. Um, and it's a taking on of responsibility for the safety of yourself and others. Um, the interesting thing about trauma is that it can be big, like your experience, or it can be an accumulation of small things. And one of the things we're we're only recently really beginning to understand scientifically is that trauma accumulates. And there's 
I wish I knew where I had read this study, but there's beginning to be evidence by scanning the brain that people who have gone through small trauma accumulating through their lives, this this is more in the racial study um, field, but I think it's, it can be translated into everyone who's gone through these small micro microaggressions or, or, or micro um, traumas that what they're seeing in the brain is the same thing that they see for people who have gone through identifiable single or, you know, extensive trauma, which means that a lot more of us are walking around with trauma in our bodies than we previously recognized. So yeah, it's recognizing that we've gone through experiences that are traumatic and that we hold that in our body and that we need to we need to figure out how to feel safe and and our dna written in our dna is that instinct of i have to be safe so i have to do what i need to do to stay in the community because being banished means certain death for our ancient ancestors And that's what's written in our DNA. We don't think that our bodies react that way. So we do things that we think on some level. And sometimes that's something we've developed as a three-year-old, a four-year-old, a seven-year-old. We think a particular way of doing something keeps us safe. So if we can get to a point in our self-knowing when situations come up that we can ask ourselves, is my life really threatened in this situation? And that's hard to do because we have to get to a point where we get, where we're living more in the moment. So we can take those pauses and say, and I mean, it's a process, right? Like I don't think I'm ever going to get it's, there's no such thing as perfection in this process. But being able to pause for a moment and ask ourselves, when we start to feel that anxiety or that rush around, I mean, there's certain clues that we can begin to know about ourselves when we're falling into protection mechanisms. We can start to say, wait a minute, is my life in threatened right now? Like That's the first thing. If life is not threatened, then we can begin to move into choices. And then we can make the choice, am I willing to do this right now? Or is there something different I want to do right now? Make choices about how you want things to play out. And that's about being present in the moment and looking to the future. It's not about getting caught up. I mean, there's great value in going back and looking at your trauma experiences. And that can be done with a therapist or through your own self-help. But the value and what I like to work with people is present moment and future. And present moment, what's safe right now? it's getting to know yourself it's getting to love yourself yes yes 
Elizabeth, where people can find you? Mm. So my podcast, The No People Pleasing Zone, um, is will give you an opportunity to hear a little bit about the way I think and the way I approach the no people pleasing, um, you know, the, the people pleasing rabbit hole. The, the best place is I've got, I'm, I'm in the midst of creating community right now. So I'm not there yet, but yes, if you go to the um, show notes of the no, of the no people pleasing zone, mm-hmm. I'll be able, you'll be able to locate where community exists and uh, I'm very excited that I'm putting together a toolbox for listeners. Um, so that <laughs> will give people an opportunity to connect with me. Um, and I do one-on-one coaching right now and we have a community building. So that's where things are right now. Wonderful. And we also post all the links below as well for this podcast. Elizabeth, do you have any concluding thoughts? I want all of your listeners to remember that they are worthy, they are enough, and they are everything the world needs right now, just the way they are. Ladies and gentlemen, Elizabeth Martin Chen. (laughs) Thank you, Hannah. Thank you for being here. I know it's not easy, but there is a part of you who is ready to take this journey all the way, and I can help. Reach out to me directly at Anna at AnnaMadeNova.com to get work. You can also connect with me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn for more healing stories and magic. This journey isn't possible to do on your own, so make sure to like, subscribe, and review the podcast so we can help more people like you. If you have someone in your life who is struggling to overcome their trauma, this is something you can give them that truly can change the course of their life forever. We'll see you next time for another episode of the World's Best Trauma Recovery Podcast. And just remember, you are able to help yourself and you can do it right now.